Hello everyone, having a little bit of audio difficulty, so let us know if you can't hear me or Chris. Hello, hello. All right, so today's topic, I welcome everyone, welcome to our live Saturday broadcast. Today is the second Saturday, or however you call it, meaning tonight I'll have the bi-weekly uh, monastic live broadcast via Saranapala's channel. Venerable Saranapala, who is a, oh, a very long-standing and well-known and well-loved monk in Toronto, who has kindly and thoughtfully set up a an international study group or presentation with about a dozen or so monastics every two weeks. So if you want to check that out, tonight we'll be answering questions that have been submitted to his channel. It's at 6 p.m., which is just under three hours from now. So today we, I will be talking a little bit about gaining right view. I've talked about view before and I talk about it quite often. I can't stress enough that mindfulness meditation practice is not about building up concentration or attaining states of calm. And Buddhism, by extension, is not about those things either. They can be helpful, beneficial, but they can also be a sidetrack. If one fixates on them, is complacent and um, satisfied with those states of calm and concentration. Because like everything else, they are un. un they're impermanent, unpredictable, uncontrollable. They're unsatisfying even. I have to remember about them that they, are, they too are unsatisfying. You come out of them, you haven't become more of a satisfied person. You haven't touched upon the root cause of suffering. Only through right view, only through right view can we free ourselves from suffering truly. Right view is perhaps the most essential positive quality for us to attain in Buddhism. It's the first of the Eightfold Noble Path. the pinnacle of wisdom. When we talk about wisdom, this is the essence of it. Right view. There's nothing worse than wrong view. We saw that this morning in our study group with Satchika. We're studying the Chula, is it the Chula Satchika Sutta? Satchika appears to have great knowledge and, and experience, familiarity with reality. But something is wrong with him. There's something wrong with the guy. He, he, he can't break through to the truth. He can't appreciate what the Buddha is saying. He can't uh, 
see the truth behind it. And it's most likely because of his wrong view. Because he follows the teachings of the Nigantas, the giants, believing that torturing oneself is the way to enlightenment. Having been indoctrinated in those views, it blinded him to the truth of the Buddha's teaching, even though he was able to answer all the Buddha's questions and correctly appreciate the, the, the nature of reality. But it, it, it was a complete block, his wrong view. Many, many things do this to us. Even our adherence to uh, material science, the idea that the mind is created in the brain, can be a real detriment, a real hindrance to your mental development because you constantly frame things from within that perspective. This is caused by the brain, this is caused by brain chemicals, the idea that desire is an organic quality of the brain, the idea that we are genetically disposed to be certain things and that the solutions lie in altering our physical composition. Religion is another one. We belong to different religions that believe in God and we tend to have the view of a self or a soul. So we don't take too much personal responsibility and, and moreover, we, we tend to be complacent in the idea that our soul is immutable. When in fact, who we are is constantly changing and being changed by our interactions with reality. So today I thought I'd talk a little bit, just a short bit about the gaining of right view, not so much about wrong view. What do we do to gain right view? The Buddha had a list of things that we could do. And it's a good way of describing the steps we need to take in our practice. It's a simple list. There's nothing hard to understand about it, but it's a good list. So the first thing we can do is, of course, cultivate sila, ethics. So everything starts with that. And we don't often catch the connection between wisdom, enlightenment, and ethics. And there is no direct connection. It's not like being ethical suddenly enlightens you. It's that without ethics, you can never hope. It's much more fundamental than that. You can never hope to gain right view without ethics. The connection is that an unethical person is, is, is messed up has a mind that is incapable of appreciating the deep subtleties of, of, rea of the nature of reality. Lack of ethics amplifies wrong view and, and it exacerbates it, prevents us from seeing clearly Killing, stealing, lying, cheating, drugs and alcohol, of course. Drugs and alcohol deserve a special mention because of how directly they contradict the cultivation of insight and clarity.
And this goes for anything that we take to to nullify our experience, to avoid our experience, to avoid having to face, confront, and familiarize ourselves with reality. We don't want to taste the mind. We don't want to face our reality. We aren't able to. We aren't qualified. We aren't capable. We have not the tools to face ourselves. And that's made much worse through, through lack of ethics, but we take unethical means to relieve ourselves. It's unethical to take drugs, alcohol, anything that brings you farther from reality, that prevents you from facing reality. We do this purposefully because we can't face reality. We don't have the tools. And the more unethical deeds we perform, killing, stealing, lying, cheating, and even the more drugs and alcohol we take, the less able, of course, we are to face reality. So ethics is the first thing, very important, essential for the cultivation of right view. The second is sutta, suttang. Sutta means listen, listening. Hearing. You know, in the time of the Buddha, it was mostly hearing. Even today, we see how much of the Buddha's teaching is through hearing. We think of studying Buddhism as something that you do through books. But in fact, there's a great benefit to hearing, a great benefit to having the internet here so that we can hear the Buddha's teaching. This is the Buddha's teaching. This list is from the Buddha. So you're hearing my filtered relation relating of the buddha's teaching but it is it does have the buddha's teaching in it this is what you're hearing suttang you have to hear it and you have to listen you know many teachers will give lectures on the the, the true nature of listening of of hearing you have to hear. Hear doesn't just mean having an ear that works. It means having a brain that works, a mind that works as well. Meaning you have to pay attention. And you need a clear mind. You have to hear with a clear mind. You know, if you're drunk, it doesn't do you much good to hear or to listen. But the same goes if you're intoxicated by sensuality or anger or doubt, worry, fear, depression, sadness. But uh, simply put, hearing just means learning in any way, shape, or form. This is the gaining of knowledge on an intellectual level from someone else. It can take in many shapes and forms. It involves the gaining of, of knowledge that you didn't have, of uh, gaining a perspective that is not your own, which is a very powerful thing because you may not agree or understand but it gives you an option that you didn't have before. When you hear about how to practice meditation, what a powerful thing that is to have heard about how to practice meditation when you didn't know how, right? What a powerful thing, just hearing. What we don't want and what we always have to caution people about is you can't understand that sutta, hearing, leads directly to right view. Meaning 
You can't expect to gain right view just by reading all of the Buddha's teaching or even hearing all of the Buddha's teaching. If you listen to all my talks, thousands of talks, well, yeah, maybe 2,000, I don't know, more than 2,000 probably, on YouTube, that won't enlighten you. That won't give you right view. It will give, it hopefully will give you some sort of intellectual right view, some sort of idea of what right view is, because you'll hear all sorts of teachings and you'll understand intellectually what I say right view is in many different ways. You know, there's right view is not something you have to really define because it's just the Buddha's teaching. It's about what is the nature of reality about the Four Noble Truths, the Three Characteristics, that sort of thing. You'll, you'll, you'll gain that understanding. So Sutta, if you didn't have Sutta, the only way to do without Sutta is if you become a Buddha yourself. And that really just means trying everything, learning everything, like literally everything. You have to spend countless lifetimes cultivating and and you have to somehow keep going in the right direction you know what's remarkable about the buddha's path the bodhisattva's path is not just how long it took how long he strove it's that he never wavered you can't just think that if i spend all that time i'm going to become a buddha most people if they spend that time after a lifetime or two lifetimes they'd forget it all they'd start heading in the wrong direction. The Bodhisattva never went in the wrong direction. That's remarkable. The only That's the only way to avoid hearing from someone else. Don't discount how powerful it is to gain teaching from someone else. Don't think of yourself as someone who doesn't need to learn from someone else. There's no other way, practically speaking. The third is sagacha. Sagacha is sagacha means discussion. Discussion different from listening. Sagacha is when you talk talk with your teacher, talk with someone else. It doesn't have to be a teacher actually should be someone who is knowledgeable, but it can be someone else who, who is also a practitioner, which really we all are. None of us are really teachers. Our teacher is the Buddha. But when we talk with each other, we can gain so much. And of course with the Buddha, you know, in the time of the Buddha, Sagacha was a big part of his teaching. When he taught Satchika, what we studied this morning, he said, what do you think, Satchika? Is rupa nichangwa anichangwa. Anichang. Right? He said he asked several questions with Satchika. Had Satchika answer him. There's a great benefit in in a teacher asking questions because it has the student, like a therapist in some ways, has the student recognize realities, helps a person to speak. Speaking yourself helps you organize your thoughts and your understanding. So asking Sachika these questions, it was very much like Socrates, someone remarked. We, what we know in the West, Socrates' method of trying to help people free themselves from wrong view. He does a really remarkable job of making such a guy eventually become lost for words, having no response.
It's about correcting wrong view. And of course, also about asking questions. Sagacha is about the student asking questions or gaining knowledge through asking questions of someone who might have an answer. So a big part of what we do here today, of course, is going to be asking questions and answering questions. That's the Sagacha part. Of course, you don't want to fall into a discussion as a practice where instead of practicing silently, we try to find knowledge in others. You don't want to fall into asking questions as a practice. Questions should be for the purpose of uh, preparing and, and correcting your practice. Preparing in the sense of clearing up doubts about how to practice and confirming the, the method of practice. And correcting by asking questions. If you don't ask, you'll never know. But once you do ask, then you have to move on. And so the last two are samatha and vipassana. We have silang suttang sagacha. Number four is samatha. Number five is vipassana. And we might as well take them both together because it doesn't really do to separate them. You can. It's possible to practice one first and then the other. You can do either or. But the best is to practice and think of them both as a part of the same practice. Samatha means tranquility. Vipassana means seeing clearly. And these refer to types of meditation, or they refer to aspects of meditation. And as I said, you can practice them separately, but eventually they have to be cultivated together. You need both. So samatha is the quality of meditation that quiets the mind. And this is, of course, attained through the mantra practice, any kind of mantra practice, really. And we and vipassana is the clarity that comes from specifically applying one's meditation practice, for example, the mantra practice, to ultimate reality. Because not only does that tranquilize the mind, preventing the mind from cultivating reactions and judgment and so on, but it also allows one to observe clearly without any prejudice or judgment, and so see clearly see so many things clearly see so many things about the mind and how the mind works and that that is what we do that is what we share that is why we're here so now uh, you've listened you've all been very much ethical during this time unless you were sitting there killing things or drinking alcohol or something Hopefully you were sitting here listening patiently. I think most of you were incredibly ethical during this time. Incredibly ethical because we weren't doing anything wrong. Listening. Now is your chance for sagacha if you have questions to ask them. And at the same time, those of us who don't have questions, we can sit back and listen and cultivate samatha and vipassana, tranquilize our mind and cultivate insight clarity of mind through mindfulness practice. Okay, let's begin. I don't consume alcohol, but my wife does. Am I breaching a precept if I buy it for her? I tried to explain to her its negatives. No, you, not unless you... See, the thing about precepts, they're promises you you make to yourself. They're vows you make. So, you know, you can't... You break them when you make a vow, when you make a vow and then don't keep it. So the, the fifth precept... The thing about the five precepts is they're considered vows that everyone should take. And the fifth precept involves not consuming alcohol. So that's all that that vow pertains to alcohol, drugs. 
So no, buying alcohol for someone else doesn't breach a precept. It's probably a bad idea. You know, of course you understand that it's better if somehow you don't, you aren't involved with that. And I was, I remember I went to a bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah once and uh, they wanted me to pour the alcohol and I just stood there because I didn't feel comfortable at all pouring alcohol in, into wine glasses for people. Today, I think, or or I just got a message from a family from my family saying I should join their Passover ceremony, and uh, I know there'll be alcohol there, so I don't want to, and I won't. I refuse to. If you can get away with that, on the other hand, I went to my mother's weddings, uh, and and there was lots of alcohol there, and I just sat mindfully and ate my food and then left. Everyone was quite engaged in drinking alcohol, but um, but yeah, the, I I I didn't feel comfortable pouring alcohol. I did, on the other hand, um, work as a as a waiter for a while. This is all after I started meditating, but before I became a monk, I was a waiter for one summer, and I felt kind of concerned because part of being a waiter is bringing people alcohol, but I just kept thinking of it as this person wants this thing, and I'm bringing it to them. I'm just performing a function. I'm not actually helping them in their quest to, to to drink alcohol. I'm just helping them obtain what they want to obtain, you know, providing a, a functional service. There's a story about a, a woman who cleaned and laid out the traps that her husband used to kill animal, to trap and kill animals. And she would clean the blood off of them and set them out on the table for him every morning. And she was a sotapanna. She was already an enlightened being on the first level. So you, you you don't have to be that concerned about these things. But if you can avoid it, it's probably best. If you consume anti-parasitic medication, or, for example, treat your food before eating it to kill worms. Is that breaking the first precept? Or are they not sentient beings? If you're treating your food to kill worms, you might be breaking the first precept. Now, there is um, some anti-parasitic meditation that just expels the parasite. But it depends what kind of parasite I think. I don't think bacteria is considered to be sentient, for example. A single cell isn't considered to be sentient. Um, but like tapeworms, I don't know, maybe. I guess I'd be cautious about that sort of thing. But one thing about that is um, it's kind of a gray area because you don't always know what it is that you're that 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 is there like you aren't conscious of a of a sentient being that you're killing i don't know that's not i guess that's an important question for people but not really a meditation question can we focus on the dissolution occurring in each moment and note dissolution 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 if that's what you experience, I mean, you don't want that to be an intellectual exercise. You don't focus on things, you focus on what you experience. So the problem there, I think, is in your focusing on the dissolution as though that's what you wanted to see in, 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 uh, at, at the expense of everything else. If you see something disappearing, I wouldn't use dissolution, it's such an awkward word. You do something like disappearing or dissolving, I don't know, ceasing, I guess. Knowing is what I would consider most likely when you're aware that something is ceasing. Note the awareness. Is it right to say that your teaching is to focus or to make an effort of being completely present in the now and just notice the objects coming and going in the background? Well, I don't have any teaching. I'm passing on the teaching of, of the Buddha, I think. 
but of my teacher who passed it along to me. But I don't think you have a great characterization of, of what I am passing on. So I don't know if you've read our booklet on how to meditate. That really sums it all up. It might be something you'd be interested in. Or if you're really interested in learning about what I teach, then you could sign up for an at-home meditation course. During meditation, aren't we forcing the stomach into prominence when we return to it? I don't think that's a great characterization of it, no. no we note things until they go away, and if after a while they don't go away, we, we return to the stomach as being something that's always there. It's not forcing it into prominence. It's just going back to it. In walking meditation, when you get distracted, why is it recommended to note standing before noting whatever distracted you? Usually whatever distracted me is gone by then. Well, in walking, you can actually ignore certain things. You don't have to note everything for that reason. It's not really that valuable. But if, you know, if you're stopping, you should note stopping and then standing. It's just a good way to ground you. But that would be in the case where there was pain or something, or you're distracted, like your mind is not focused, then it's something that is sort of long-lasting, and you can note it while you stand there. But it's a good exercise to see that it's already gone as well, see that you can't, you're not in control, and you can't predict whether it's going to stay or go. So don't be concerned with that. I notice many creative ideas and solutions come while meditating. Should these just be noted and let go of by returning to the breath, or allowed to run their course? Well, you're not going to stop them from running their course. Just note them until they're gone. What you don't want is to get caught up in them, excited about them, liking them. You have to note that fairly vigilantly. So... But you, you may not be, you have to be honest with yourself that it's not about these ideas and solutions coming, it's about how excited they make you, mostly. And that's what perpetuates them. So you have to note that, liking, curious, whatever. If I've already done a retreat in a different tradition, should I stick with that tradition until I am able to do a retreat in this tradition? I'm not seeing much progress, despite a lot of practice. Well, I'm not sure what tradition you have, but you've done, but um, progress is something that I discourage people from focusing on because usually they don't understand what progress really is. Um, and it's not quite fair, but... It does seem to be the case where, honestly, the, you will never really focus on progress. And if you're focused on progress, it's a sign that you don't really have a great understanding of what progress is, because progress is about the clarity of the present moment. And usually our idea of progress is some sort of concentration, some state of calm and tranquility, and where the mind is quieted and... and whatever, or, or some idea of some epiphany that we might have, but none of that's really progress. Progress is do you have less greed, do you have less anger, do you have less delusion, is your mind more clear, are you better at being mindful, are you better at seeing things just as they are? The problem is we're always looking, we do that, and then we're looking to see what did that do, what effect did that have? And it doesn't really work like that, of course it has an effect, but how could you possibly see the effect? It's so complex. We're complicated beings. So all of the things we've done in the past still have yet to catch up with us. And to expect that somehow sitting in meditation would have a, have a, 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 a sort of a signpost effect where you could see, wow, look what that did, is, 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 is not really 
um, realistic. So never, never, ever focus on results. And someone who has gained results and really benefited and changed from the practice still doesn't focus and shouldn't focus on results. They focus less on results. They're much more interested in the actual cultivation. They, they, they begin to lose any interest in results because they get more and more confident and, and they see the greatness of, of mindfulness, of clarity of mind. There really is no result. The end is not a result. It's a, it's a, a state, you know. It's a quality of mind where the mind lets go. So I mean, that didn't really answer your question directly. Let's see. Um, right, so one thing I might say is if you haven't done the at-home course, you might consider signing up for that because anything you might learn about our technique from my teachings, my public teachings, is only the first steps. We purposefully don't give out the more advanced. I mean, there's nothing special or mysterious about them. They're just more advanced techniques because we want to give them out to people who are ready for them. So we want to test you and study and, and work with you and make sure you're ready to go further. You can't really go further on your own, uh, not, not, not in the same way. But um, yeah, I, I I would certainly recommend considering to continue with this practice. It's just if you really want to get anywhere, it's a good idea to consider doing the at-home course. It's all free. We don't charge money for anything, so you're welcome to sign up. I notice I can spend too much time finding the word to describe my experience during meditation that I feel I lose focus on the experience. Any advice for this? Well, it's often misleading to think that you're not focused on the experience. We, in fact, want to limit our focus on the experience. We don't want to get caught up in the details and the particulars. The Buddha said, the Buddha said explicitly not to. He explicitly described a meditator as someone who doesn't get caught up in the particulars and the details so it can feel somewhat superficial and that's on purpose we only want a simple it's not exactly superficial it's a simple understanding seeing is seeing hearing is hearing and we don't want to go further than that because anything further than that is outside of reality but as far as not being able to find the words that's um, that's like with anything any new training it, it takes time to get skilled at it so wouldn't be discouraged by that or take your lack of focus on, on the experience as any indication that, that has many reasons and many aspects to it. And just cultivate the skill of recognition. I mean, really, that struggle is a part of the process of gaining the ability to recognize things as they are. Because if you're, if you're struggling to find the word, it's generally a sign that you're not really understanding or seeing it as it is you have all sorts of ideas about what it is instead if you can't recognize a thing as a thing you know seeing is seeing hearing is hearing that's a sign that you're not really living in reality which is for most of us the case that's why it's a challenge but when you can recognize anger as anger and say when you're able to say to yourself angry a big reason or big part of using the words is cultivating this skill of recognition ah this is this this is that so we so we see the difference between things where we're able to be with things as they are. How could I get help with my practice? I feel tingling sensations when I meditate, walking, sitting, all postures, but the mind pulls out after 40 or 50 minutes and I can't go deeper. So it sounds like you have a different idea of meditation than, than we teach. We're not trying to go deeper. Mind pulling out doesn't mean anything because mind is always changing. So it's pulling out and pushing in and doing all sorts of things. Uh, tingling sensations also don't mean anything. They're just tingling sensations. So if you haven't read our booklet, I'd recommend to read our booklet. If you're interested in doing an at-home course, that's a way you could get help. But uh, I would recommend... Uh, learning how to see those things just as they are. So when you feel the tingling sensations, to understand them as tingling sensations. 
when you're walking to know that you're walking, sitting to know that you're sitting, and the booklet explains how to do that. As far as the mind pulling out, I don't quite know what that means, but I have an idea. It's a change in your state of concentration, which is always happening, and you're, what you're seeing there is non-self, impermanent suffering and non-self. And so the problem is without instruction and without right view, really, it's easy to miss that and to think that there's something wrong, when in fact, all you're seeing is the nature of reality. Should one seek experiential evidence of unwholesome deeds to be able to let go of them, or is the practice enough to understand the reality? So there's no such thing as an unwholesome deed. I don't quite know. If you're asking, should I go and do bad things in order to be able to let go of them, that, of course, would be a silly, that would be a very terrible thing to do because you'd be cultivating rather than letting go. Every time you, you incline in an unwholesome way, unwholesomeness, of course, is in the mind, and every time you incline in that way, you're you're reinforcing it. That would be a bad idea. You know, if you don't have any unwholesomeness, rejoice in that. And the goal isn't actually to let go of unwholesomeness, it's to see everything clearly. So your focus should not be on unwholesomeness, it should be on reality. And when you see reality clearly, then you free yourself from suffering. I sometimes completely forget about the object of meditation and move to a completely different object. Is this normal? Am I doing something wrong? We're not concerned about normal. This is what's happening to you, so that's what's interesting about it. Um... I don't know if you're doing something wrong. I, I'm, I, from this statement, I can't really tell, but um, you're not in charge of your forgetting and your remembering, right? You didn't purposefully forget, whatever that might mean. So what you're seeing is the nature of the mind, that it's impermanent suffering and non-self. It's a part of the process of seeing clearly of vipassana. So there's nothing wrong with that statement. It's just something you have to be mindful of and and roll with, you know, when the when 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 these things happen to be able to adapt and to continue on and not get stuck. What would be a problem is if you started to worry about it and doubt about it or get upset or frustrated about it, that sort of thing. In a previous video, you said we should not worry or think too much about enlightenment, but is it not important to have the concept of striving to live in a non-inferior manner? I don't quite know what that means, striving. It's an interesting way of putting it, to live in a non-inferior manner. Superior? Um... Not important. I, I mean, I don't quite see the connection. So the concept of striving is, is it not important to strive? Is it not important to have an attitude of striving? Yes, those are important. But they're, they're not related to enlightenment. They're related to freedom from suffering. They're related to freedom from defilement. They're related to the understanding that we are defiled beings, that we have problems that cause us suffering that we are not enlightened. So rather than worrying about enlightenment, we, we should be much more concerned about the fact that we're not enlightened. It's more like that, you know. And so we, we strive to enlighten ourselves, to we strive to, um, to see more clearly. It's very much about our present moment. You know, the problem... What, what, what the way it's looked at is as some kind of goal, some kind of badge, some kind of identity where you become an enlightened being. And, and you can't see it like that. If you think, oh, that I could be a Sotapanna or an Arahant or an enlightened being, that's not what it's like exactly. I mean, that's not, that's not 
helpful, let's put it that way. What's helpful is you focus on reality and you focus on the things that you don't see clearly and you try to see them more clearly. That's it, you see? It's nothing to do with focusing on enlightenment. What would that even mean? It, it's so conceptual. Focus on the things you don't see clearly. Once you see them clearly, that's enlightenment. I mean, that's becoming enlightened about them. Is metta recommended for social anxiety? Not really, no. Metta is recommended for anger, hatred, grudge. People are very angry. That's what it's really recommended for. For social anxiety, I mean, there's nothing better than mindfulness. Anxiety, worry, fear. Mindfulness is so helpful for that. I mean... You have to understand, from a Buddhist perspective, there's nothing good about being social, a social butterfly. Um, being good at, at being in, in crowds is often a bad sign. It might be a sign that you are superficial, that you are unmindful, like living outside of your own reality, living for other people, that sort of thing. Buddhists become a bit reclusive generally, so... It might be that that even the the idea of social anxiety is is a part of the problem, and it makes you anxious because you think you should be more sociable, you should be better at dealing with people. When in fact, dealing with people is a big pain most of the time. I mean, if you're dealing with people who are hard to deal with, if you think of most social situations, clubs, parties, uh, even work office life, dealing with a lot of different kinds of people, and many of them are not really interested in spiritual things. So it's going to be a real pain to have to do that. There's no way around it. And to think that somehow you should be good at that, a person who is enlightened is often shuns those sorts of things because of how harmful and unbeneficial un, un, un and wholesome they can be. Is the concept of enlightenment different in different traditions and religions, or is it the same? Well, of course, it's different. I mean, different religions have different views. I don't quite understand the question. What happens if you know what is not most prominent? Is it still effective to any extent? All right, these are getting a bit speculative. Did we lose all our tier one questions? I'm not interested you sensed it correctly. These are tier two. There's no what happens. Don't ask me what happens. Just do it the way I told you to do it. Do you have a problem noting what is most prominent? I mean, if I ask you that, I think it might help to understand why you should note what is most prominent. Anyway, maybe we'll stop there for the day. No good questions, but let's let's not get too speculative or into things that aren't. Remember, we're trying to be here as as mindful as possible. So we're trying to make this a practice. If we get if we stray too far into speculation, then doesn't actually help us with our state of mind. One aspect of listening is um, is the, the practical aspect. As a practice, you see, like while you're listening, to also be mindful. And there are many cases of people becoming enlightened while listening because they weren't just listening, they were applying. And you can't really apply if it gets too, too speculative, you see. So... Try to, that's why we try to focus on what's most important. There's another that I think is worth uh, answering, Bhante, and then I think right. we're done. Okay. When I sit to meditate, I get flashbacks of past traumatic experiences I had. It scares me, and I feel vulnerable throughout the day afterwards. 
when I try to ignore, I feel numb. How do I help myself? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, absolutely, I will say read our booklet and consider doing an at-home meditation course. But specifically, I mean, fear is an experience and ignoring is not something we do. So if you read the booklet, it should help you see that. Feeling vulnerable is also an, an experience. You shouldn't ignore any of this. You shouldn't also ignore the flashbacks. You see, a big part of this is going to be the the ability to face the flashbacks, to face visions you might have of, of things that happened or thoughts that you have. It's a challenge, but eventually you're able to experience them and the reactions to them and work through them. It's like self-therapy, really. You know how therapists get you to voice your emotions, get you to acknowledge your emotions. What they're doing is a very sort of roundabout way of doing what we're doing, which is much more direct. When we remind ourselves, this is this, this is that, it's like self-therapy. And it's so effective. It really is the only way. There's no other way to free yourself from these things. Ignoring, distracting, none of that is helpful or useful. I wish you all the best. I hope you're able to use mindfulness to help. So there we've come to the end. Thank you all. Good questions. Thank you, Chris and Ulu and Jim for your help. Thank you, Bhante. Wish you all happiness and peace, Sadhu. And uh, if you come back in just over two hours, I'll try my best to have a broadcast up.